0: As many of our listeners know, Dr. David Feliciano sadly passed away in January, 2024. To honor his memory, we've re-uploaded two of our interviews with Dr. Feliciano as well as a tribute with some of our thoughts on the passing of this legend of trauma surgery and a great mentor and teacher.
1: Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast, with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it.
0: It's not an understatement to say that Dr. David Feliciano is a true giant in trauma surgery. He literally wrote the textbook on trauma, now in its eighth edition. In this episode, Dr. Feliciano gives us his insights on leadership, recruiting star faculty, research, and the future of trauma. Check out all the show notes for links to the papers we discussed in the show.
1: Well, Dr. Feliciano, thank you very much for uh for spending your time and and meeting with us on on Cold Steel uh our podcast. We we uh we really 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 truly do uh um thank you for it. We know how busy you are and how crazy the world is right now and it's uh it's amazing to have an icon um, on cold steel, like like yourself, I guess our first question out of the gate is, um, you know, all of our listeners, of course, know who you are, but but few of them know you. So we're just curious where you grew up and and what took you down the pathway towards medicine.
2: I uh, was born in New York City, grew up uh, briefly there, and then when my dad left for World War II, my mother moved to. Uh, northern New Jersey, about 15 miles from New York City, because that's where my father's large Italian family was stationed. So I grew up there. My interest in medicine was almost uh, completely due to my father, who was a community surgeon, again in a city of about 25,000 people and almost exactly 15 miles from New York City. I rounded with him when I was five years old as a start. And he later had me working, doing urinalysis in the lab on Saturday mornings when I was in high school. And then, of course, uh, I got my first job as an operating room technician in my father's hospital and then spent a total of five summers uh, working at uh, hospitals in the New York, New Jersey area as a technician. So I had a lot of exposure to medicine. And secondly, my dad was one of these even-keeled, likable human beings who was really revered in our town. He was the board of education doctor, the board of health doctor, the industrial consultant, did all the physicals for all the high school athletes. So I, I was kind of really immersed in medicine from a young age, frankly. I, I owe it all to my dad.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And that... Immersion is probably the right word. Did you ever consider doing anything else at any point?
2: No, it was always medicine or science, but my, one of my vivid memories is when I was uh, filling out my college paperwork to go to Georgetown in Washington, D.C., there was a line you had to fill in, which was, what, what is your projected major? And my father was sitting next to me at our home in, in northern Jersey. And I turned to him, and I said, well, what should I put? He said, well, you put biology, because that's pre-med. So that was a very short discussion.
1: (laughs) Short and direct, eh? Can can you tell us about your your training pathway um, through medical school and then uh, all the way through the end of your training?
2: Uh, Briefly, I, I really wanted to stay at Georgetown for residency, But my father, was, who was a Georgetown graduate, class of uh, 39, was really opposed to that, and he thought I ought to get out and see other academic centers in the country. I found out that the Mayo Clinic was now uh, accepting interns. They had previously only accepted residents, and I eventually matched at Mayo for my surgical residency. The thing that struck me when I interviewed at Mayo was that they did 120 cases in the operating room in one day in their two hospitals when I interviewed. And it looked looked to me like they did more cases in one day than Georgetown University Hospital did in several weeks. There was also a a large variety of cases and a lot of high-end cases. So I discussed it again with my dad, and that was my first choice, that I matched there. And you know, I'm eternally grateful for his advice and for the training I had at the Mayo Clinic. I uh, went to Houston right after that to do what in those days was a vascular fellowship. And that came about because I wanted to go on staff at the county hospital in Houston, now called Ben Ben Taub Hospital, But Dr. DeBakey and the faculty at uh, Baylor College of Medicine said, Well, I couldn't go on faculty unless I took either cardiac or vascular training because everyone, in quotes, had that kind of training there. So I started, uh, I did a six month vascular fellowship, all of it on Dr. DeBakey's service, and then became an attending at the county hospital after that six months. Uh, When I got interested in trauma, it appeared that uh, I might need some more training. So I took a leave of absence from my residency at the Mayo Clinic and eventually spent you know, my time as a trauma fellow in Detroit with uh, Charlie Lucas and Anna Ledgerwood. So I've trained in a few different places and I've trained with some really good people, obviously DeBakey and his colleagues yeah. in Houston, and Ken Maddox in Houston and Charlie Lucas and Anna and her trauma in Detroit. I really encourage people to not be afraid to take a look at places that perhaps wouldn't uh,
1: fit their mold,
2: but be aware that places with huge volumes and lots of experience can teach you a lot.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, your, your training and mentor list is is sort of the hit list of of that you know that 1.0 um, generation of of trauma surgeons uh it's it's remarkable you, you clearly uh you know i would say at least from the outside made your name at, at Bentob in Houston with your partners birch and and Maddox, and then moved on to Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta where i think you know i think it's really honestly safe to say you took it to a whole new level level and i would say i would say iconic um what was it like walking into, transferring over and walking into Grady Memorial Hospital, given the, the history and the weight of that place, initially led by Harlan Stone and, of course, then you? How did you feel and, and, and how was that experience?
2: I really campaigned actively to become surgeon in chief at Grady. Uh, my predecessor, the late Roger Sherman, was uh, nearing the end of his time there. And it looked like a perfect place for me. I would be in a leadership position. I would still have a huge volume of general trauma and vascular surgery. And I would be affiliated with a a nice private university, i.e. Emory. When I got there and and I was aware of some of the issues, they had really not had a very large number of full-time faculty there. A lot of the faculty historically rotated down from Emory University Hospital to help cover. There were no attendings in the house at night. Many of the cases during the day were performed by senior residents without supervision. Uh, three things I uh, really tried to change quickly. One, we took back the trauma resuscitations from emergency medicine. We got a stat page system. The attendings had to answer and later the fellows, so we quickly reestablished ourselves as the trauma resuscitation team. Uh, secondly, we did not have an ICU service when I got there, and eventually all the partners in our group were double-boarded, so we had a surgical intensivist in place every day, and then eventually a full-time surgical critical care service that the fellows, residents, and students could rotate through. And then I think the biggest decision was I told the faculty they would have to come in at night on every case. But I did not in the beginning mandate that they had to sleep in. And I sort of learned some lessons from watching other leaders. And about nine months later, I said to the faculty, aren't you tired of coming in at night? Why don't we just sleep here? It'll be a lot easier. And interestingly enough, nobody objected. And it really... Really changed, I think, the hospital's perception of our our group that we were really committed to taking care of the patients. Because remember, we weren't getting paid for night call in those days. We just I mean, slept in of right. our own volition.
1: Wow, well, you've you've certainly trained a lot of Canadians, and you know the the three of us that comes to mind would be right. you, you know in order <laughs> Lorraine Trombley in Toronto, uh, Neil Perry in London, and myself here in Calgary. Um, and we, we all talk about it. You know the institution of Grady and Emory, and of course y- you guys as a group uh, as being a really unnatural, almost almost um, like beyond superstar, like like a truly globally impressive group of, of of faculty that we got to interact with. And I realize parts you know change here and there, but I'm curious how did you how did you create that that group up front, and and what do you like? In terms of leadership style how do you how do you get there? How did you do that?
2: I think you have to be very honest when you're recruiting people so when we uh, sent out uh, a call for people to apply for faculty from time to time, we didn't gloss over the problems. We reminded people this was a public hospital that salaries were sort of restricted to AMC levels for academic rank, that night call was unpaid. And then we told them the positives, that there was a huge volume of general trauma vascular intensive care for them to work on and to study. We told them the Emory residency was elite with a lot of great residents at the time spending 35 to 40% of their five years at Grady. And then after interviewing people who we felt were really interested in coming, we always met as a group to see if the other partners thought the new person would fit in or not. It's very interesting. We had several occasions where we had highly qualified candidates who just didn't appeal to everybody as a co-worker. We were very busy clinically, as you well know, and We had to cross-cover one another at night. We had to cross-cover one another during the day in the ICU. And Even though the group was not all lovey-dovey, we had to get along professionally, and it was really important for everybody in the group to have a say in who came in. I really was looking for highly energetic people who understood the hospital It wanted to be part of something that was clearly going to get better over time. Um, We had one person who interviewed with us who had done trauma, but was mainly interested in advancing his laparoscopic career. And when the group met, we agreed his interests were not really in line with ours perfectly. A very good person. Interesting. I know what happened to him over his career probably would have been of great benefit to our group in terms of developing laparoscopy, but we were primarily interested at the time in acute care surgery and people who would, you know, make a run with us while the group was intact.
1: If we shift gears a little bit here, uh, Dr. Feliciano, we and we sort of look at the concept of, um, especially for trainees, you know, selecting a fellowship. I, and I don't think I ever told you this, although uh, maybe in the last 24 hours did, one of the there's many reasons that that you know i I came down to uh, grady to to train with you guys, but one of the reasons quite honestly was I had spent a significant amount of time almost six months in South Africa and the the volumes were similar and my observation of how deeply and profoundly you and your faculty cared about the patients and were willing to go to any ends um, no matter how described to to provide optimal care you know I remember you saying to me early early every patient's your brother your mother your father your sister and treat them as such um, that was a huge reason why why we showed up and I, I think Lorraine and Neil would say the same sort of thing so outside of things like that are obvious like high volumes what should a, a trainee be looking for for a high quality fellowship experience
2: I think uh, there are a couple of things. Uh, one is you have to get a sense when you interview on whether the person who leads the group, whether it's a division chief or a hospital chief or whatever, is really committed to mentoring and supporting somebody's career. I've worked with several chairs, for example, where their goal was to continue their notoriety, but were very terrible mentors. And that doesn't help any young fellow or faculty person. So a strong leader who's clinically active, who will be supportive. Secondly, uh, the vibrations in the group is everybody on the same wavelength in terms of caring about the patients and committing themselves to always doing what's right, always getting up at the M&M and telling the truth in front of the fellows and residents. I think those were really the important things uh, for somebody to consider when looking at a fellowship or a job. Is the group functioning well together? Are they committed to the same goals? Do they look like uh, they will support a new person? Most of my choices for faculty were were really good. had a couple couple glitches along the way and, and in retrospect. I had funny vibrations about the people <laughs> eventually turned out to be somewhat troublesome. And I always became much more sensitive to my inner vibrations with people rather than looking just at their CV. And that was part of the process of everybody in the group saying, is this somebody who I want covering my sick patient who will cover me when I have to run home because my child is sick, who will come in and help me on a busy call night? Groups are really critical to academic development because the more smart people you put in a room, the better the abstracts and the studies and the papers and the presentations are going to be. A few individuals can do this alone, very bright, highly motivated people, but I think the thing about our group was that we were pretty much on the same wavelength. We all believed in the academic process and we all Pretty much wanted the other people to succeed, which is really critical. Yeah,
1: there's no question the academic productivity that had come out of of Grady, you know, under obviously your leadership and also Dr. Riziki's leadership uh, was absolutely remarkable, and it just changed the field forever, over and over and over again. You you did mention the term mentorship, and I realize mentorship and teaching are are different, but but certainly perhaps related um you won the teaching award uh general surgery teaching award at emory university i don't know how many years in a row I, I remember it was absolutely ridiculous you you can remind us but um not so much how do you do that but what advice do you have in particular for maybe junior faculty that are trying to get better at teaching and and engage as mentors um in their in their practice and in their careers
2: well, my wife's the expert on mentorship, having given given a presidential address or two on it. I, the biggest thing about being a leader or a mentor from the mentor side is you've got to be willing to take the time to listen to the fellow or junior faculty and get a sense of their motivation, what their problems, uh, what problems they're confronting with any projects and all, and how they perceive how their own career is going. One of the things I learned earlier as a surgeon-in-chief of Grady was to keep my mouth shut when someone came in my office at a junior level and not try and respond to every point, but just listen <laughs> and get a sense of if they were satisfied with the way things are going or not. And the other thing I learned and was that When faculty come to you with problems and you're their mentor, you do not have to tell them in the first conversation that you're going to solve their problem. I learned very quickly not to make those promises and to say to people, let me think about it or let me talk to some other people and we'll get together in two weeks or something. Let's make an appointment now. I found that a much better way to mentor and supervise or whatever, because it gave me time to think out a good solution. And if I didn't have a solution, I would tell people two weeks later, I don't think we can solve this problem that you're having, but here are some options to maybe work around it. So good mentors listen. Good mentors show interest in the production and advancement of their mentees. It's time-consuming for the mentor. It's hard work sometimes. It can be frustrating. And particularly for someone like myself, who's not really a extroverted people person, it's, it's a learning process. You certainly get better at it. My relationship with the fellows at the Shock Trauma Center in terms of mentoring is really good because I think I understand the process better. I can sympathize with the fellows as they're getting ready to Take a job. I can sympathize with them in terms of the things they don't get during the fellowship in the modern era. But it is a process where you get better at it. But in the beginning, Chad, you have to be a believer in academics. And mentorship is, of course, one of those things that's part Mm -hmm. of it.
1: For sure. the The natural next question then is, and you sort of bring it up there is. what sort of factors should go into the equation in evaluating and then selecting your first job out of the gate or out of fellowship?
2: yeah, you know, hard thing to do
1: yeah for sure. basically
2: yeah. it's it's similar to what I mentioned previously. Um, you should have a set of criteria that you think would be necessary for your first job, for example, if you have been in a fellowship where you had 85 or 90 percent blunt trauma and have never operated on a gunshot or of the femoral artery, but you're really interested in that injury, then you probably should not go to a center that does 85 to 90 percent blunt trauma again. You should know yourself a bit as you finish your fellowship, and say to yourself, "These are the things I really enjoy doing. I love clinical high-end trauma surgery. I love writing papers." Well, therefore, am I going to a place that has mechanisms available to help you with data collection, data retrieval, statistics, editing? Thirdly, I think you need to see the salary progress. Do they go by AAMC guidelines? Do they go beyond that? Are there bonuses for night call? There's a whole list of things that I give fellows if they ask me, on things to look for in your first job. But I think you do it logically. It's not a random, and certainly you should have some criteria, as I mentioned. And then finally, it would be your inner vibration. Do I feel like I would fit in here, or are there clearly several young faculty who are disgruntled and talking about leaving? That's, That's not the kind of situation you want to go into.
1: Uh, that's, that's superb advice I mean so, sometimes that can be hard to figure out and, and sometimes certainly it's it's not hard to figure out um, but due diligence is is key you've touched on a lot of the things maybe that surround the answer to the next question I'd ask you um, but just to put it in in a cohesive package um, if you are starting out in your first year second year third year what are your concrete um, um, advisements for either starting a clinical research program or even maybe more challenging, a laboratory research program. And I think it's certainly an increasingly relevant question, at least it is in Canada, because the funding mechanisms are poor, you know, our our provincially-led um, um, healthcare systems really don't um, more and more so care about uh, research at all. All they care about is, you know, high-quality clinical delivery Um, and that has a trickle-down effect, not only just because of the money, but also just the general environmental milieu that we experience up here.
2: I really just did a little bit of laboratory work early in my career, so I should not speak on it at all, but my my advice would be in, in any decent academic center, and often in your same department, there are other people who are funded who have active labs, and it's often very helpful to join one of those labs first where they have PhDs to help the science. They have technicians to monitor the animals. They have, again, a mechanism to collect data, retrieve data, et cetera. I think to start a de novo lab as a new faculty is, is very, very difficult these days, particularly if you only have a starter grant from your own department. So I, I would you know, consider joining with others. And some of my colleagues in academic surgery have been very effective in going to other departments in medical school when they have interests similar to, let's say, an immunologist or somebody like that. And that really helps uh, getting involved with established people. uh, Clinical studies, you need a certain number of criteria. You need the volume of the thing you're going to study. I always use the example if the only trauma you get in your trauma center is traumatic brain injuries, then that's probably what you ought to study. And then again, instead of gun trouble is the order. I mean it's not complicated. You study what you have. And then there's a series of components. Um getting through the IRB is one of the big ones these days. Uh yeah. secondly, once <laughs> once you're approved, mm-hmm. it's a question of uh whether you will have people to do the data collection, or as I did in in Houston, and Gene Moore has done repeatedly in Denver, Uh, we had the residents fill out, you know, data sheets on certain injuries after they came out of the OR, and Gene used to have them put it in a mailbox or a slot in his door, and I would collect them in the morning report, At Houston, so I had a continuing stream of data coming in, and you can, in these days, load it into a computer online. And then you should just, uh, you know, ask science questions, clinical science questions that are realistic. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. And the final thing is to have the support that I mentioned. Do you have a good track system where you have a registrar who can charts from this data later. Do you have somebody who can help you write? Do you have somebody who can help you get an abstract ready for submission? You'll you'll hear this theme recurrently that all these processes in, in an academic career are collaborative in some way. And many of my studies were incredibly simple, just comparing splenectomy versus splenic repair. You know, we had two groups. This is the mm-hmm. way they presented. This is what their associated injuries were. This was how bad the spleen was. I mean, I presented two papers at major meetings on splenic repair because, you know, we were doing it when I came to Ben Tom, we were doing 50 splenectomies a year. Uh, you know, in five years, that's a couple hundred. It's incredible. So look at what you have. Get people to help you with the data collection, et cetera. And be collaborative in the study. Include your colleagues if they're, you know, submitting patients for the study.
1: You know, we we've all learned so very much from you. But there was sort of three things that I that I think um, that you profoundly drove home in, in myself and and a lot of us that have come through there. And the 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 first thing is, as you point out, asking that simple question. Your your questions and your in your publications are always. Extremely clear. It was extremely focused and extremely direct, and I think that's something that um, our brains tend to overlook, and we we try and overcomplicate it sometimes when the when the basics aren't answered. The second thing that that was really helpful, at least for me at the time, was I I would come to you and I'd say I have this idea, like uh, I want to look at A versus B. What do you think? And and I don't know if you remember it or not uh, at this point, but he would say, Well, that's a great question, Chad. Um, and, and then you would proceed to tell me how it fit into the last hundred years of history of that of that question or that concept or that area of of surgery and that in itself. Um, is something I don't see around a, a lot, a complete command of the literature so that I'm not spinning my wheels and I am trying to produce some sort of paper that, that contributes to, to moving the field forward. So I think finding, you know, that one or two or three people maybe in your department that has that historical um understanding is 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 amazing the the third thing was you know and i i hope maybe you can comment on it is the actual process itself so um you know the 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 contemplation and the conception is one thing but in terms of sitting down and writing an abstract and then Targeting a particular meeting, and then writing that abstract, editing that as I should say, writing that manuscript, editing that manuscript, and submitting that manuscript to a given journal. What do you have any any thoughts you can share about that sort of um, more uh, definitive uh, end process? You, you really
2: get better at the process, like everything I've mentioned previously. Meaning, when I first started writing abstracts. I would put in conclusions that really weren't justified by the data, or I'd make gratuitous, uh, superfluous comments in the conclusions when, again, the the data just didn't support it. I think when you first start, go to the program book of the society that you're submitting the abstract to and look at the abstracts in the previous uh, year or two. And you'll see, uh, you'll gain a lot of wisdom from seeing how people are able to condense their thoughts, not put in too much data, and then draw a limited number of conclusions from the available data. And then, honestly, I I was pretty careful at Grady about reviewing almost all abstracts that went out to major meetings. Mm -hmm. I, I know that offended some people, but, you know, I'd done it for a long time. I'd been on program committees. I've been a program chair for several societies and I just sort of had a sense of when things were just unclear or unreadable. When you write an abstract or a paper, I think it's really important to write an outline ahead of time for both. Like what exactly, why did we do this study? What's, what's, what was the main hypothesis? Secondly, just list the methods if they were retrospective or concurrent or just say it and don't apologize for it. It is what it is. And then some people put so much uh, results in abstracts or in papers that it overwhelms the reader. And I, I certainly in the abstract, it ought to be very, very limited. But then finally they need to correlate to the conclusions that are drawn. I don't think an abstract should state more than one or two, significant conclusions when you write papers after you get the outline you know then it's honestly a matter of doing it over and over and over again ask any academic surgeon about a paper he or she wrote you know 30 or 35 years ago and compared to their most recent published paper and they'll all notice a change in the style of writing it's much more direct it's clearer conclusions were probably better justified. One of the things I learned at Baylor when I was a young faculty was I got to know Dr. DeBakey's sisters, Lois and Selma, who edited all of his publications. And Lois was a bit crusty, but she took an interest in me because I took an interest in her. And one of the things she said to me early in my career was, write like you speak, meaning... Many surgeons really write in a flowery fashion when they have an abstract or a paper accepted to a meeting. And the first thing I always do is, if I'm editing, is take out all the flowers and just boom, boom, boom. This is a scientific paper. People's time is limited, and you want to get your, your points across in a relatively rapid and clear fashion. So I go through a lot of edits. Uh, for chapters and papers i've i've had chapters where i've done 18 drafts i just couldn't couldn't get it right and i kept moving paragraphs and changing words and if you're not willing to commit you're not going to get things accepted and published because people will not be able to get your ideas if you're a bad writer
1: yeah there's, there's no doubt that's so true um, I think we all know you're you're editing red pen well, and we all uh, appreciate it both at the time, but even more so as as time goes on. Well, some some people
2: appreciate it <laughs>
1: <laughs> far from I, all. I don't know. I think most. I think most. Now, I, I know you didn't want me to ask this, but uh, but I'm going to make the comment and ask you anyway because um, everybody you you you've trained us essentially uh, um, has been telling me to ask you, which is the. the you know, the, the statement is you are a technically gifted surgeon, full stop, non discussable, non negotiable, and, and I think the world knows that. The, the question then is whether whether you start that way, uh, which is probably very few, or whether you, you get good um, to that level or, or close to that level how do you get better clinically as we, as you go through your career? You know, and, and I don't know if you think about it in terms of junior, you know, mid-career senior or, or how you think about it, but we're all curious how you, how you put that together. How do you get better on the clinical side?
2: Well, just, just to be frank, I was very average when I finished my training at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, it was a different kind of residency in those days and. uh a lot of complicated stuff that the faculty did a lot of. So I was considered average. I'd be in the great middle of the bar graft. I did recognize that when I went to Baylor, where the residents were very technically gifted, many of them, because they had this huge set of hospitals where they operated. You know, the county hospital, Ben Taub, private hospital, Methodist, the VA, a children's hospital, another private hospital. And what I did, and this sounds crazy now, but I told my wife at the time that I was going to sleep in the hospital as a new attending and take call with my team at the county hospital every third night. I mean, no one told me I had to do that. No one paid me, but I slept in every third night on my own without getting paid for about six months. And just watched and assisted the chief residents at Baylor College of Medicine, and I learned so much, both good and bad. Mm -hmm. The second thing I think that really helped was there was a tendency many years ago for faculty not to cover all cases in public hospitals, as I mentioned before. But I really love operating like most surgeons, and I just found that if my team was going to do a, a toe amputation, for example, and the chief resident really wasn't interested because he or she was going to cardiac surgery, I would happily scrub with the intern. And I still do it at shock trauma. I mean, I just do. You You just keep operating every day. There's some academic surgeons who are so busy traveling and lecturing, Writing grants, whatever that they you know they end up doing a hundred cases a year or something. The usual two two cases a week, you will not get better at, at that volume. So almost every year in academics, I, despite you know the other activities, I made sure I did about three fifty to four hundred cases, which is eight cases a week. Um, It really helped me get better and better because I operated on everything as we used to in those days. Uh, You know, the general surgery cases, the vascular cases, thoracic for trauma, endocrine. Uh, You know, if you do a broad base and maintain a high volume, you just get better technically and you get smarter in terms of your intraoperative decision making. The other thing I've done is, and this isn't done much anymore, but I used to go watch people operate. I used to go back to the Mm -hmm. Mayo Clinic about every year or so and pick one of the surgeons there. It was usually John Van Heerden who I had tremendous respect for as an endocrine surgeon. I would just stand behind John every other day, the Mayo Clinic way of operating, and just watch him do cases all day and ask him questions and take notes. I went to MD Anderson uh, within the past four years to learn how to do a retroperitoneal adrenalectomy. One of my fellow Mayo trainees is chief of endocrine surgery there. I called her. I just went down, spent my own money, and watched her do cases. And I've done that all over the country. There are people I wanted to watch where I never got there, but I'd really recommend that. And then the third and fourth thing is don't be afraid to talk to people in your own institution. If you want to learn how to do open peripheral or an open door economy, then go talk to your local vascular thoracic surgeon and say, you know, I've got a slow week coming up next. Would you mind if I sat in or scrubbed in or whatever observed you on any open cases that you do? So I've been watching surgeons my whole career and you get a sense of, I can learn something from this person. I can. So it's a multi-step process, including all the things that I mentioned. But the big ones are: get volume, stay with it, don't abdicate the OR to advance yourself academically.
1: Oh, man, that's such great advice. You know, it, it also requires humility and it requires persistence. Um, and yeah, that's that's amazing. The, one of the last questions I want to ask you. Um, Uh, bosses you've always said to me time and time again that you should reevaluate your own career in a very honest way maybe every five years or so and whether that's setting new goals or reassessing your immediate environment um just figuring out how to move forward can can you can you talk about that for um for the benefit of our listeners and, and what you really meant
2: When you start your career, there's
1: probably a small subset
2: of people who really have an idea that, you know, I want to be a chairman or I want to be the highest billing surgeon in whatever department I'm in or whatever. But most of us have to be in a place for a couple of years to see, for example, what the case mix is, how referrals occur, what comes in on night call. But in the end, you want to find what really is a passion what really gets you excited in the OR and outside the OR, those two things. I mean, some people are terrible teachers and other people are gifted teachers. Some people are great leaders and other people are not. And at some point in your first year or two, you ought to sit down with yourself at a desk and say, these are the two or three things I want to accomplish in the next five years. Meaning, I will need 40 to 50 publications to get promoted to associate professor. Okay, how do I get there? How many papers is that a year? What topics am I going to write on? Who am I going to have help me? Or I want to be the greatest teacher ever in the history of the med school. Let me go talk to the person who runs the student program. Let me talk to the program director for general surgery. Where can I get involved in teaching? It's sort of like a business decision. You, you've made a choice on what you think are the things that really get you excited. Now, the next step while you're sitting at your desk is what are the three or four or ten steps you have to take to get to that goal. Many people find if they're in a trauma career that after the age of 40, it gets very difficult. You, you don't recover as quickly if you've been up at night. A lot of the patients are so sick in this era of geriatric trauma that it's not always enjoyable. And some people feel like when they have one of these conversations with themselves, they want to branch out and say, I'm going to start moving toward becoming a leader in an academic department or in my med school or in one of the surgical societies. And it's the same process. How do I get there? And you just have to be prepared that, it's like life. You're not going to get everything you want out of an academic career. But with hard work and planning and good mentorship, you're going to get a lot of what you desire. But reevaluation at least every five years is critical. And if you have to change paths, yeah, change paths. It's just like life. It's not a crisis.
0: I have two questions for you. One is, when did you sleep? <laughs> And the second question is, um, you know, as someone who really has a command, as Dr. Ball said, of the history of trauma over the last, um, you know, however many years, um, where do you really see trauma care going in the future, and what do you see as the big challenges for trauma care uh, for my generation?
2: I think this is an individual thing, but I'm a napper there isn't a Saturday or Sunday that went by when I was active and practiced that I didn't take some naps. I learned that from my father, by the way. Uh, In terms of the, the history, it really helps when you're writing papers or even planning studies or giving presentations to have a sense of where we all came from as surgeons, particularly in trauma. And the history is, you know, unfortunately goes back about 2,000 years if you've done some reading but i will encourage people to do the reading from history books i've got you know majors history book of all the first descriptions of medical diseases i have any number of surgical books from the 40s and 50s reviewing the history of surgery up to that time the the materials out there for for Christmas, I gave three of my colleagues around the country, one one outside shock trauma and two inside, a book on the history of vascular trauma from a resident at Duke who was kind enough to send it to me. So, I mean, the material is out there. It's just a matter of, instead of watching another episode of something on television, it's just picking up a book and committing yourself to 15 to 30 to 60 minutes a night when you're not tired and and just learning about these things, Uh, annotating in the margin, taking some notes. So that when you go to write something, you have this material available and you're very familiar with it. I'm, I'm very disappointed in the journals that now say we don't want any references before the year 2000, uh, I'm particularly sensitive about that because it's about sixty percent of my CV. <laughs> and so you know every, everything I wrote is disappearing. but the uh, big, biggest challenges in trauma care, um, I think with the availability of acute care surgery for people in trauma, a lot of our concerns about recruiting our successors have been uh, alleviated, frankly. Now it's a question of getting people to tackle the questions that we have never been able to answer, right? Like, simple question, when do you do a fasciotomy? You know, we can't answer that. Whether you're talking about a therapeutic or a prophylactic fasciotomy, we know there's a lot of individual variability in how people tolerate a higher compartment pressure. That just absolutely speaks to the need for a prospective study in many centers. Should you anticoagulate after you put in a PTFE graph for trauma? I have no idea. I know what I do, but we need to study that. There are a bunch of people going around saying you don't need to use heparin while you're doing a peripheral vascular repair. Oh, really? How do they know that? Well, they did some retrospective data collection and wrote a terrible paper. So I think there are a lot of questions that should keep people interested and active for many years to come. And I would encourage people to pick one of those questions early in their career and say, I'm going to spend the next 30 years studying, operating, and writing about this topic. For example, you'll never see my name as a first author on a paper about colon injuries. Why? I can't explain it, but I don't have that great an interest. So my partners have always written, yeah, you, I've picked areas that are really of interest to me, like vascular trauma. I think trauma has, and acute care has a pretty bright future. Keeping people in the profession as they get older requires a division or a chair to allow people to make some adapt- adaptations to the physical constraints and things like that. But right now, as long as we have men and testosterone and alcohol trauma will not go away in the United States.
1: I, I just want to end by asking a very, I think, simple question that we ask uh, a lot of the guests, which is very simply, um, you know, thinking back over, in your case, an extraordinary, uh, long, productive, and, and amazing career, what advice um, would you give trainees or what advice would you have wished you have gotten uh, earlier that, that maybe you didn't?
2: I didn't recognize early on how important the, if you will, the old boys network was in controlling a lot of academic activities outside the medical school, meaning getting into societies, joining committees and societies, getting to present at the college, presenting at major meetings, being asked to write chapters. There is a network of people in each specialty that, in a way, control many of the activities. And and it took me a little while, again, with an introverted personality, but I did learn to go up to people at meetings and say, you know, I really admire your work, and I just have a few questions. And by doing that, you know, I got to meet some really great people from all over the world, and I got some really great advice. And then they knew my name and that I was interested in their field. So I would not be bashful. I've, I've told people, I tell fellows this all the time. They never Mm -hmm. listen. (laughs) But if you see Gene Moore at a meeting and, and you have some issue or, you know, academic or career wise or whatever, he can find the time. You just have to approach a person like that appropriately and say what I said. I met Leon Pachter at New York University on a tennis court. I went up to him and I said, I have read all your papers, and I said, I just love him. And he is now, you know, all these years later, it's 38 years later, we're close friends. And and that kind of contact really helps you. So a big one is branch out, make good contacts in your field. It'll be mutually beneficial over time. And the second thing really is, you know, find your passions if you can early and, really commit to them, as I mentioned previously, and you'll get better at writing about them, studying them, or even operating on them. You can't be a a rubber ball in academics. Some people are, but you want to have a few things that are really true to you that you're interested in and pursue those.
0: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.